This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 7, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. State pensions continue to threaten state budgets and have come to threaten even the provision of basic local services. The fear for many state governments, sadly, is that the true severity of the problem will eventually be revealed. Peter Constant is a senior fellow at the Reason Foundation and is executive director of the Retirement Security Initiative. We spoke last week. If you had to pick one problem in state pensions, and of course there are many, but if there is the keystone of the pension problem in the United States, in states, uh, what would you say it is? Denial. Denial. And what uh, enables that denial? You know, as you look at pension boards as they're making decisions, or even legislators as they're making decisions related to pensions, you know, they, they have this big vehicle, so to speak, and they're driving it all by looking in the rearview mirror. And there's this continual feeling that this is just a little anomaly. It's going to work its way out. Look, look backwards. Look at all the things that where we had problems and they fixed themselves. So it just needs time. I, I hear it phrased as once we get back to 8%. Right, right. And nobody's looking out the window. You know, you got to look out that windshield and you got to look forward. And, and there's this denial that we're sort of in a new normal environment. People seem to not be able to make the connection that we went from the bottom of the Great Recession to the top of the U.S. financial markets, the highest point any of our indexes have ever seen, and pension funding status regained 2 or 3%. That's got to tell you, it's, it's something beyond the fundamentals of investments that are driving this. So uh, the New York Times recently had a big story about uh, pension financing. And what the indication that I got from that and from some other things that I've read and, and worked on is that the discount rate set to be equivalent to an anticipated return on a portfolio is in fact insane. It, it's now, a little explain bit what that explain what that means. Yeah, it's a little beyond insane because pensions are made up of two components. You have assets and you have liabilities. And with your assets, it's completely normal to look at it and say, okay, I think I can get X percent in the market. So I'm gonna sort of plan on that. I'm gonna build my asset allocation, my investments around that. That's reasonable. But Individuals the, do that every day with yeah, their own portfolios. It's a normal thing to do. You look at you know what you want, where you want to go, how you want to get there, what the market's like, what kind of tolerance for risk you have, and you move forward. But on the other side is you have the liabilities, which the normal average person doesn't have in their investment portfolio. But you have this basket of liabilities where you have promises that government agencies have made for work that has already been done, benefits that have already been accrued. Courts and laws have already recognized these are property rights. These are rights that no longer belong to the government agency. People are entitled to them. Inviolable. Inviolable, yeah. And you have this, um, you know you have to pay them. There's virtually, from the recipient standpoint, there's virtually no risk because the government agency is required to tax their way out of it if they have to, sell assets if they have to. They must pay those. And so when you're picking a discount rate, when you're looking at that long-term liability and trying to figure out how much those promises cost, that discount rate has to be looked at as what is the risk that you're going to be able to get out of paying for it? Or from the other end, what's the risk to the recipient that you're not going to be able to pay? And that risk is virtually non-existence because you must do it. And governments are perpetual agencies. 
There's very few things that can impair these. So when you have these immutable debts, you can't simply leverage yourself up and wish your way out of it, which is what pension systems are doing. If I had a mortgage and I underpaid my mortgage, I could say, well, I'll just file bankruptcy. Yeah. Or my credit cards. Well, it's worse than a mortgage because let's look at something that really happened. Let's look at subprime mortgages because we know exactly what occurred. Look at the fundamentals of what happened in the subprime mortgage. People got loans regardless of their ability to pay. They made promises that they had no idea that they would be able. They didn't even have to tell their income. They were stated income loans. They were just able. Didn't have to prove anything. So they had no reason to believe that these folks could pay. They had variable interest rates that they had no idea that what they would be. But it was okay because they manufactured a temporary interest rate and whatever they owed additionally just negatively amortized onto their principal, and it went forward. Well, that's what the pension funds are doing. They have no idea whether the government agency in the future is going to have the ability to pay. They set an unrealistic assumed rate of return and an unrealistic discount rate, both causing different but similar problems. And then they're making the minimum payments and putting the debt right back on top of the principal and saying, that's okay, we're going to amortize that new debt for another 30 years. And what happened in the subprime mortgage problem? Everything collapsed. And these pension systems are poised for the exact same failure. My home state of Kentucky um, has some pretty significant uh, issues related to funding, and uh, it's the the language that surrounds it is sort of odd. Sometimes they say, "Well, it, this is a funding issue," uh, whereas uh, I think a fairer assessment is to say, "Well, this is a combination of a funding issue and an unrealistic promise issue." Well, you can term anything a funding issue. Affordable housing is a funding issue because you don't have the funds to pay for the house. Not being able to buy a Ferrari is a funding issue because you don't have the money to buy it. So there's no doubt that there's a funding issue, but is the funding issue the problem? And I don't believe it is. And it, even if you do, if you think that the funding issue is a problem, then shouldn't you be correcting your behavior immediately so that you don't continue to make those promises that you can't afford to pay? And that's really what's not happening in the pension systems. So states, having accepted in many cases only that it's a funding issue, have said, well, what we should do is issue a bond and take a certain amount of the money that we owe uh, and and get a big infusion of cash right now, and then we'll just pay off that bond. But they don't suspect that they ought to also make any changes to the pensions themselves, which in many cases, they can't. It's like not being able to afford your credit card payment so you get a second credit card to pay it. It doesn't solve the underlying problem. And right now, pension obligation bonds, which I believe are a bad idea in almost any time because you're really relying on arbitrage and that it's going to come out in your favor. But even if you thought it was a good idea and you can make the economic argument for it, can you make an argument that this is the right time to do it? Because remember, we're at the top of the financial markets. We've been in the longest extended recovery period that we've had. So we know there's a downturn. So there's a pretty darn good chance that you're not going to be able to outperform the bonds because in these good years, they haven't been able to outperform what the bonds have cost. What's going to happen when we have that next downturn? Because we know we're going to have it. We don't know when it's going to be. We don't know how deep it's going to be, how long it's going to last. But everybody knows it's coming. 
so enough of the bad news. Um, let's talk about things, uh, pension reforms that have been successful. Uh, when people ask me about what states ought to do with pensions, uh, my response always begins with, you have to stop the bleeding first. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of analogy, so I, I, I put it a little bit different. I think of it like a, an oil spill. When, when you have an oil spill, you have to take immediate action and you have to cap the leak. You have to stop what's spilling. Then you have to contain it. Then you start to clean it up. And even after it's all cleaned up, you really do a deep failure analysis to find out what went wrong. And then you find those things and you fix them so they don't go wrong again. And in order to address pensions, you have to do the same thing. It's, you know, the old adage, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Either stop digging or at least get a smaller shovel. And that's not even happening. So that's why I said in the beginning, this is a state of denial. You got to admit there's a problem so that you can take steps to fix it. And once you do, there's a number of things that you can do. You can't wave a magic wand and get rid of the debt. The debt's the debt. People have earned these benefits. It's not the employee's fault. The retirees earn their benefits. Government's made promises. You got to figure out how to keep those promises. That doesn't mean you need to keep making promises that you can't afford. So you have to look at it and say, how do you do this in a way that's fair to retirees, fair to employees, and will still provide a reasonable, sustainable pension so that people can have retirement security in the future for new hires? What has Arizona done? Arizona, I think, is the best recent example of reform, and it stands out for a number of reasons. One is it it was a major reform to the Arizona public safety system, so a statewide system that covers police officers and firefighters. But it was a reform that was uh, designed through a collaborative process over a period of 12 to 14 months. And it was actually a reform that once it passed the legislature, the unions actually went to the voters and funded a campaign to get the ballot measure passed because they saw the benefits to retirees, current and future employees. But what it allowed us to do over this long period of time was not only um, just come up with reform, but we were able to analyze all different methods of reform and figure out what worked best for Arizona. Because while all these pension problem, all these pension systems have problems, they're not all the same problem, and you don't have one rubber stamp fix that you can do with all of them. All right. So for states like Kentucky, or let's just throw out some random states: Illinois, New Jersey, Connecticut. What do you have to say to them? Well, states like. New Jersey and Illinois, the, the two worst of the bunch. So they're easy to pick on. Uh, but the first thing is you got to start making your payments. They're not even making the minimum payment on their credit card. They're, they're putting a paltry amount in the, in the state of New Jersey for teachers. You know, we talk about how much we value our children and their education, and we value teachers and their commitment. The state of New Jersey is contributing 17% of its retired required contribution towards teacher pensions. How can you say you value a teacher if you're not willing to invest in what you've promised them? And when you're making such little payments, it will never, ever get fixed. And you know, I think for the majority of the United States, pensions are a repairable problem, that there's opportunity to, to fix things. But you get to a point where some states might be intractable and what's going to happen. And those are what I worry about with those big states. And again, the denial that people in the legislature, their governor's office are saying, well, we haven't, we didn't pay the full payment last year, so we don't need to pay it this year. We'll worry about that next year or two years or four years out with this thought that all of a sudden there's going to be this windfall of money. 
And we know that that's not going to happen. There is a massive disconnect in the analyses produced by financial economists and the actuaries. And actuaries are, of course, the people who are most likely to be hired to manage pension funds and help provide analysis for state lawmakers. Um, Why does that disconnect persist? And what can be done to get financial economists and actuaries on the same page when it comes to valuing assets and liabilities? Well, I hate to pick on actuaries, but you know, it's actuarial science is much more of an art than a science. And unfortunately, actuaries live in a world of assumptions. And the only thing that we know about assumptions is they won't be correct. We don't know if they'll be better than we thought or worse than we thought, but every actuary will tell you. They can tell you for 100% certainty one thing, and that's that all of their assumptions will not come correct. And, come and let, let's, let's be fair to them and, and say that if they build in an 8% expected return on a portfolio, what you're saying is you don't get 8%. You receive a return that may be centered on 8%, but a wide distribution of possible values that may be centered on that 8%, right? It is. And the the actuaries are in an interesting position because they must take the direction on the assumptions from the board of trustees. And in some states, the legislature legislates what some of the assumptions will be. That's a terrible way to run a pension plan. But when you have a actuary that goes and says, okay, we have a range of possibilities for you to choose. These are all fiduciarily acceptable, low risk, medium risk, high risk. This is what I advise you to do. At that point, after that board makes the decision, all the actuary can do is make the calculations based on those assumptions. And and sometimes the the consultants on the investment side and the consultants or actuaries on the actuarial side see things differently, and the boards are in a position where they have to figure out where to go. And unfortunately, this rosy colored glasses of optimism seem to always prevail at these board meetings. CalPERS in California is a great example. They've had 15, 20 years of performance that did not meet expectations. Their chief investment officer has clearly told them for the next 10 years, We'll be fortunate if we can get 6.4% return on our investments on average, and the board selected a seven and three quarter percent assumed rate of return. There's a big disconnect there. There are many local governments that contribute to state-run pension funds. In many cases, what they contribute to the fund is a set, is a percentage of their payroll that is set by the state. And uh, having looked at what ha- the experience in Kentucky, and I don't know what the date, the, what, what uh, any research says about this, my assumption is that, well, if you're a local government and you have a percentage of payroll that's definitely going to support this pension fund and you can't afford to make that payment and you have to make some cuts somewhere, you cut your payroll. You cut local services. Yeah, and there's actually two problems buried in that. Well, one is setting an arbitrary contribution rate that's not tied to a valuation report is a bad idea because a legislature this year has no idea what next year or the following year's valuation report is going to be. And they're saying, well, we think the contribution should be 11.65% based in nothing other than that works in the spreadsheet. And, and, 
And that's troublesome because you will underfund your plan almost always. Rarely will you ever see, I haven't seen one yet, where the, the contribution rate exceeds what it should be. Uh, but then beyond that, you look at what happens to cities when they can't afford to make the payment. And I'll use the city of San Jose as an example. I served as a city council member in San Jose for eight years. And during my tenure, the city faced ongoing deficits that had to be resolved that cumulatively were about $650 million over a six or seven year period. So what that meant is the city had to reduce its workforce and reduce the amount of services that were provided to the residents. We went from an organization that had 8,000 employees to an organization that had 5,000 employees. A police department that had already one of the lowest officers per capita in the nation at 1,450 police officers um, for a city of a million to 1,100 police officers because 350 positions were eliminated in the budget because we could not afford to pay for them. We call that crowd out. The pension contributions are crowding out the rest of the city services. The city of Redding in California is a member of the CalPERS pension system. They have a, a, a serious public safety concerns right now. The, the residents, the businesses are up in arms over the increase in crime. They don't have the resources to deal with it. They asked me to come in and help with an analysis of why they were having this problem. And we looked that over a 10-year period, the city had increased its funding to police departments specifically by 74%, a significant additional investment in public safety, yet there were 24% fewer police officers on patrol in the city of Reading because that additional money bought less and less because the money was going to the pension contributions. Peter Constant directs the Retirement Security Initiative. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.